This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Uh, there's a creator who creates creation from absolute nothingness into somethingness. Now, what is this nothingness or a creator that exists in the pre-space-time realm? What is it used to create the world? What does it use? Does it go to Home Depot? Does it go to Costco? Like, what did God use? What did this pre-creation being create the world out of? And the answer is that if all there was was it, meaning this being, if all there was was it, what did it use to create the world? Itself. So the actual creation is made of itself. This is why we have two words for God every time we make a blessing. When we say Shema as well, it's because there's one word representing God beyond space and time, like that being outside space and time. And then we have another name for how God manifests inside creation, which could be in a bottle, a backpack, or a helmet, or a table, or you. And that's called Elokein, or Elokus, or Elokim Shalom. So whenever we make the word, whenever we say the word Elokein, we're always talking about how God manifests inside creation. And have you guys ever thought about this? Because you're raised always saying Hashem Elokeinu in your blessing. Baruch Hashem mm-hmm. Elokeinu. You're so used to saying it. But do you ever stop and think, like, why are we using two separate names for God? And the answer is, it's like a, God's like a burrito. There's the tortilla surrounding space and time, beyond space and time. And then there's the rice and beans, how God fills space and time. The second one's more spiritual than the first one. Why? Because the first one is, you know, it requires, you know, a lot of expansive thinking to, like, get in touch with what it is exactly. The second one's right here. You know, it's, it's God in the, in, enclosed in creation. In fact, the, the Kabbalists use the analogy that the, the physical world is called the garments of the king. The physical world is the garments used as a, the analogy is that, that there's a, there was once a wood a wood uh, uh, chopper what do you call it? Woodcutter? Wood chopper? Lumber <laughs> a woodcutter who lived like far, far, far far away from the kingdom you know, in, a, in just some province there, you know, they only know the king's name, they never really uh, you know, ever had even seen a picture of the king, uh, a drawing of the king, nothing. Anyway, the woodcutter looks up from his wood because he sees that horses in a buggy have pulled up, and he looks and he sees the most beautiful carriage he's ever seen in his life. And here are these, like, you know, like uh, messengers of the king dressed in the funkiest, coolest outfits you've ever seen. Get out of the buggy, out of the carriage. And this carriage is, like, you know, covered in gold. And they pull out a scroll and they read it. Is your name so-and-so? And you fill in the blank with your name. And you're like, well, the king has decided on you in his entire kingdom to come to the kingdom and to meet the king and to really to live with the king if you so choose. Now, what would you do? Would you come? A single woodcutter in the mountains hundreds of miles from the kingdom? The answer is, I'm coming. So then the, uh, the king's 
the king's messengers say, would you like to bring some nicer clothing? And you, you point to your clothing and you're like, this is all I got. And they're like, well, get in. So you get into the carriage. You're looking out the window as you're, you say goodbye to your village maybe forever. And you make your way out, sleeping in the bed in the back of this beautiful carriage. And you're making your way, and you're making your way, bumps, 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 bumps. Eventually, you feel something smoother. And you wake up that morning, you look out the window, and you see cobblestones. First time you ever saw cobblestones. You say to the drivers, you're like, who, who laid these cobblestones? And these were, were financed by the king. You're like, oh, it's a lot more comfortable. And you're cruising along, and then you go back to sleep that night. The next day, you wake up to even smoother stones. You look outside, and you see like much more detailed, much more prevalent stones, uh, more dense stones, and it's even smoother. Who laid these stones? Like the, again, that was it was financed by the king. Going further and further, more and more ornate architecture. The closer you get to the capital city, where the where the castle is. Finally, you get up on the last seventh day, and you wake up, and it's like the streets are paved with smooth, gorgeous stone. And the, there's there's uh, hedges shaped in the shapes of like sea life and stuff, like dolphins and whales and fish and stuff, all commissioned by the king. In and you're looking at architecture; it looks like Prague. You know, it's just gorgeous, gorgeous architecture everywhere. And then finally, in the distance up this hill, you see this castle. And then the drawbridge comes down, and you cross the moat. And there on the other side, you get through these gates. And there are the tallest people you've ever seen in your life. They're the guards of the king. And you're looking up at these guards, and everyone's like looking at you like, whoa. Because they've all been waiting for you, because they knew that the king was bringing this person all the way to the kingdom to live with the royal family if they so choose. Let us show you to your quarters. They take you to your own wing of the castle that is now going to be yours. You get out of the carriage and you stop there and suddenly you have tailors circling your body with measuring and measuring tape. And they're, they're checking out your everything you got. People are looking at your colors of your skin and your hair just to like match the outfits they're going to be creating for you. And then you're off to a bath where people of your gender are bathing you. And, and uh, in the royal bathhouse and uh, of your own quarters. After a brief rest in your bed, you're awoken to put on your new garment. And, the, and it's time to go meet the king. The king's been waiting for this for months. You make your way over to the chamber, room after room, chamber after chamber. Each one's more innate, more gorgeous. You were thinking on the way to greet the king what you were going to say, but you've lost your ability to speak. There's nothing you can say. And you finally get to the chamber of the king, and you're standing before the king who's sitting on his throne. And he's got this smile on his face. He's so happy that you've come. You've been specifically chosen, scouted, and des de desired. And the king comes out of his throne. His men gasp. They've never seen him get out of his throne like this for somebody. And the king walks right up to you and welcomes you. And he says, you can stay as long as you want. You can stay as long as you want. We will never, ever ask you to leave. But on your own volition, you certainly can leave whenever you choose. But we'd like you to become part of the royal family. 
to stay here with us. When we travel, you'll travel with us. When we dine, you will dine with us. You are part of the royal family. And the king says, so now go get your tour of the castle. And he gives you a big hug. And you're standing there in the arms of the king, just going like, do you hug back? What do you do? And then the king goes back to his throne, and you're let off. And all of the, all of the king's servants, they all want to know what is it like to be hugged by the king. What's it like to be hugged by the king? And the king's never hugged anyone before. That we've seen. What was it like to be hugged by the king? Now I'd imagine that you will not say if the king if they asked you what it was like to be hugged by the king. I don't think any of you would say, well, I mean the king was wearing like five garments. You know, he had his underwear, he had his, uh, his tunic, he had his you know vest, he had his cape, he had his you know robe, and then his cape, sorry, and his crown. Like I don't think any of us would say, well, you know, what kind of hug has you know it's wearing five layers. I don't think any of us, I don't think any of us would say, well, the king was wearing five layers. Right? Aren't we usually happy that someone's wearing clothing when they give us a hug? <laughs> it's usually a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So why, so you would never say that. You're being hugged by the king right now the whole physical world is the garments of the king think about it if all there was was God what did God use to create the world if all there was was God what did God use to create the world the answer is himself that's all there is and you are in a constant embrace take a moment just to feel through the phone ring uh, if it rings, I forgot to put it on. I'll put it on if you don't disturb. Just in case. Sorry. Airplane mode. Sorry, everybody. We're good? Okay. Everyone close your eyes a moment. Mine are closed, so you're safe to have yours closed. Whoever's still looking at me, I feel that. <laughs> Please close your eyes. Take a deep breath. And feel the garments of the king. Realize that you're in an embrace. It's in the fiber of your clothing. molecules of air on your skin. The chair that supports your body. The air conditioning system that keeps the temperature comfortable. The glow of the sunlight coming into the room from without. deep breath, feel yourself in the garments of the king. 
embrace. Surrounding you like a cocoon. Breathe. But not only surrounding you, also filling you. Your skin cells. Blood cells. Bone cells. Brain cells. All the neurons in your brain. You are in a constant embrace that perhaps until now you were unaware of it. This same being that embraces you in such an intimate way also is orchestrating and arranging all of your life, all the details. Even to be in this room right now, watching this live is all arranged. Yes, of course you made a choice, but so many factors way beyond your choices had to fall into place for that choice to be made. Orchestrated all around you. The king's crazy about you and wishes you would stay but would never force you. Take a deep breath. And get in touch with the reality of it all. The awesome Embrace. And it's not just for love, but it's also for keeping you straight with all kinds of messages that keep you on the right path. Gratitude in your heart. Feel your heart swell with gratitude. You may be going through things just like the nations going through things that you preferred you weren't going through right now. But those are also shaping your life. Just as you can look back in retrospect and see how everything you went through helped create who you are today and you wouldn't trade that so too now you're going through stuff that you wish you weren't yet it's also shaping you into a greater person your mid story and every story has a resolution 
it's all for your good. Realize the insanity of going away from this feeling. How crazy we are sometimes to go away from this. Seeking some futile sense of autonomy, separateness from the very author of the story we're in. Imagine trying to run away from the author of the story you're in. What an awesome author that'll actually write the story. Oh, you want to run? Okay, we'll write that story. You want to hide? Interesting idea. I'll write that as well. Think about how liberal the author is with your life. The author's willing to write the story however you choose. The author wished, wishes you would stay, choose to connect. But if you choose to disconnect, the author's willing to write that as well. Such is the patience of an infinite being. But you have an opportunity to realize the futility of running from the author of the book you're in. And to realize, no matter where you have been, and no matter how far you've fallen from this connection, he was there as well. The king was there. writing it in. You've never had a single moment of your life that was of any distance from the Creator as the whole world comes to be via the Creator. The world is a constant unfolding of finite from the infinite. on the number five coming up one two three four and five. 
How's everybody at this point? See if you can stay connected with your eyes open. Mm-hmm. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Makes you feel for those poor people who use their brain to figure out how God's not doing all that. Can you imagine, like, actually using your own brain? That's, I mean, what is your brain? Your brain's just chemical reactions that are, you know, it's just billions of neurons. They either fire or don't fire. It's basically binary code. But, you know, it's been given enough ability to create logic and, you know, help you navigate. But can you imagine using it to navigate your way out of... Yeah, out of the reality that we just shared. That's, I can't tell if it leads to depression or depression leads to it. You know, you ever been depressed and like felt like there's no God? So I can't tell if it led to depression or depression led to it. I think it leads to depression. Well, it definitely leads to depression, but, but could it be depression led to it? Because haven't you been? I once I once had a, a uh, many years ago. <laughs> this is over two decades ago. I was um, I was learning at Aish, and one of our roommates was depressed, and so um, I didn't know that. And he just was talking a lot about doubting God's existence. And this was a guy who'd been here longer than anyone in the room. We were all observant at the time. We'd all become observant. So, so I went to the kind of the genius of the yeshiva, whose name is Rabbi Yitzhak Berkowitz. He was a great, great uh, genius. And I went, in, went to Rabbi Berkowitz and I said, uh, Rabbi Berkowitz, uh, one of our roommates is having a really rough time with his belief in God. And he's like, he was the guy who was observant in the room. Like we've all, we were kind of following him. And so now he's having like real doubts. And Rabbi Berkowitz just looks me dead in the eyes and says, how long is he? There's a nice spot right here. I want to grab this spot. He says, he says, how long has he been depressed? And I, I was like, no, no, he's having an issue with his faith in God. And he says, go check if he's depressed. And I went and checked, and the guy actually was suffering depression, which was amazing. Like, Robert Woods totally got that. He knows the kid. He knows he actually has no issues with his relationship with God. It's just that he does suffer depression. And God was out. The beauty of Sephardim, Sephardim are awesome. Because if they don't want to deal with God, they don't write them out. They'll, they just deal with the guilt, and maybe if they get rich enough, they'll buy a, an extra wing to the synagogue or something. <laughs> like that. They have ways of dealing with guilt, you know. Ashkenazim are different. They're, they're like, they're going to... They're going to, like, philosophize their way out of their being a God. They, they, they can't deal with the guilt. They can't deal with the guilt of trying to live autonomous from a being that's creating. Like, to run away from the author, you have to get rid of the author. We've got to somehow bump off the author. Because how am I going to live with myself if I'm in a book written by an author? If I can just get rid of the author, so then I don't have to feel guilty. But it goes to, it makes sense though, because if you think about the last 2,000 years, the 
uh, since the destruction of the Second Temple, the Sephardic communities have been living with full-on believing monotheist Muslims. They've spent the last 2,000 years with people who pray more often than they do. We pray three times a day. The Muslims were praying five times a day. And that was the world. The world was a God world. And so most Sephardim, they're not willing to let go of God just because they're they don't have the the strength to keep the commandments. They're not going to drop God also. But think where the Ashkenazim were hanging out. The Ashkenazim were hanging out in Europe. Europe was was a world of of um, polytheism, and then ultimately atheism, and it was all just using the brain to to get out of the thumb, out from under the thumb of a creator. And so, when Ashkenazi Jews don't want to deal with the obligations of Judaism, so they philosophize their way out of God's existence. They get rid of the author. But all of us, and even with your eyes open, let's take a deep breath. All of us can just be, just be at peace. Like that reality of, of God being God, us being us. And, um, and it's really very simple. It's just that uh, with the commandments, it gets a little more complicated. Because you know the Jews are responsible for you know this massive, massive amount of uh, of the intricacies of the creation. I don't know if you guys know this, but the Torah is the blueprint of the creation. And when you distill all the stories of the Torah and all the instructions of the Torah, it breaks down into six hundred and thirteen specific um, pipes. You can call them. Or perhaps you, for internet language, you could call it 613 hyperlinks. But these are these are pipes of the actual creation. Think about it. The Torah is the blueprint. So the 613 commandments are the actual pipes of the physical creation. Now, how did we wind up responsible for that? I mean, God, you create the world. You do your thing with your 613 pipes. And we're going to go to the water slides. Or we're going to Magic Mountain or Disneyland. Where did this whole thing come up where we have to be part of the pipes? Like, for example, God rests on the seventh day. That's good for you. Like, what's with us? Why do we have to do that? Why, do, why are we in, in charge of these 613 pipes? And it breaks into, you know how many laws there are in the Torah? The, it, when you click on the hyperlinks... It clicks. It becomes fifty-five thousand laws. Leave it to people at age to count them, but the Rambam—they counted out the six thirteen in the Rambam. It's fifty-five thousand laws. It's like what? What's going on with God that we have to do all that? And the answer is, is that, is that. For the first 24, 48 years, 2,448 years, there was no Torah. Things were very simple. Just keep the seven, go to heaven. There were seven laws of all of humanity. They still exist for the Gentiles today. Seven laws for all of humanity. And that's all that was necessary. Those seven laws. 
You guys know the seven laws for humanity? There's two positive laws. One is that there is a God, so believe in God. Jews have to know there's a God. We, have, we need more evidence, whereas Gentiles is enough just to believe. And the second is to yeah, create courts of justice, meaning, that, meaning human, beings should have, um, human beings should have a sense of security in public, in the society, that the court will actually back them up and they're not going to just get like wiped out by crazy people or landlords or whomever. And then there's five negative commandments, and they are um, idolatry, stealing, adultery, murder, and cruelty to animals. They're not allowed to do those, those five things. And one sec. Oh, yeah, good. So you're saying, I've heard those several times, but um, there's a, to me, that's like conflicting Yes. Like uh, JC, right? They believe that they. So, so you're saying this is for the goyim, right? Um, but believing in one God, they believe that JC is like you know they believe in like the three the holy. I don't even know what it. Holy What's your question? The question is, is that is that in, in a sense believing in one God or? Is oh, I see your question. Um, yeah, it's it's a bit problematic for uh, for uh, Christians who believe in a trilogy. Is that what it's called? A trilogy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Trilogy. So they, that's, that's, a, that's a problem. And I think it's mostly the Catholics that are into that. And so that's problematic. Um, I didn't come here to like condemn like, you know, a billion Catholics, but, uh, you know, and certainly the Pope, you know, he wears a keep, I should go easy on him. Um, but uh, yeah, trilogy, uh, apparently that's, that's of issue. Uh, again, I'm not the big scholar to discuss it, but certainly our our um, rabbis a thousand years ago during the whole hell we went through with Christians, they uh, uh, they discuss it in detail, and uh, I think that that the the whole things, even the non-trilogy version, uh, is is on the edge of idolatry, mm-hmm. in as much as they have kind of replaced God with with uh, JC and uh, and so whatever that, it's issues it's, it, there's definitely issues with that um, you'll notice that there's a whole community of Christians to, uh, sorry ex-Christians they would kill me if they heard me say that a whole community of ex-Christians who have taken the cross off their churches and they have um, become what are called B'nai Noach the children of Noach meaning that first group of humanity that kept the seven so they're the most beautiful people. They're amazing. They've suffered. It's interesting. They've suffered their own level of anti-Semitism because when they when they do that, often the church will go after them, and they'll be considered like, you know, really, really, you know, bad to the church. But they but there are these uh, amazing people who were raised Christian who have become bene Noach. They've taken. They've gotten rid of it. They just feel it's uh, idolatry. I remember in my sukkah, there's a, there's a beautiful man from Texas who comes every year to my sukkah. He's a dear student of mine. I have many students who are in Enoch. And he comes to my sukkah. And I asked him, is it okay that I introduce him as a Ben Noach? And he said, yeah, of course. So I'm talking to him about Ben Noach. And, and uh, oh, you know what? I'm not even going to say this live on Facebook, what he said. Is it possible to pause live? Facebook? 
Never mind. Finish? Never mind. Don't get finished. Yeah. Anyway, he. I I had made reference to uh, to someone in the Christian lore, and he uh, was so upset that I mentioned the name. This is a guy who was raised in, like a major guy in the church. He the fact that I even said the name in in uh, my sukkah, <laughs> he became like outraged, and like like it was crazy. And he mellowed out, but uh, but he he mentioned uh, he he started mentioning Hitler. Yeah. Wow. Can we stop talking about this? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to our 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 uh, reality now. Yeah, <laughs> forget about that. <laughs> So why don't we just keep the seven? Keep the seven, go to heaven. Like, why are we responsible? You guys ever thought about this? Like, why are we responsible for 55,000 intricacies? Whatever happened to keep it simple? You know, what happened to keep it simple? Where did the keep it simple? This monotheism, it shouldn't be that complicated. You know, there's thousands of laws just how to keep Shabbat. Thousands of laws. Like, shouldn't that be the simplest day? Shouldn't it be simple? There's thousands of laws. In fact, the Chofetz Chaim, who wrote the Mishnah Brewer, amongst many other books, says that if you're not constantly reviewing the laws of Shabbos, you're inadvertently breaking it. And there's probably not a person in this room who's already seen all the laws of Shabbos. And he's saying, no, it's not enough that you actually learn the laws. If you're not reviewing them, you're going to inadvertently break Shabbos every week. Like, whatever happened to, like, keep it simple? How do we get in charge of all these details? So the way I'd like to share it with you, and it's going to be a little radical, but I guess you've got to be a little radical these days, is to, to put it like this. The more you see of someone, the more intimate it gets with someone, the more responsibility you have for them. Give you the, let's juxtapose boyfriend and girlfriend versus husband and wife. In boyfriend and girlfriend, there's only so much revealed, there's only so much responsibility. In fact, it's better to hold back as much as possible from what it takes to carry you, to support you, to hold your heart. You want to hold back as much as possible because if you drop the whole bomb on him, yeah, he's just going to be like, we're not married. Like, why should I deal with this amount, this amount of detail? Because you realize that for each one of us, for someone to hold our heart, is there's a lot of, there's a long list of do's and don't do's. There's a lot it takes to, to hold on to our heart. And so, what we do is we unconsciously withhold all the stuff it takes to hold our heart just to not get dumped. <laughs> and then pretend someone's actually holding us. And we'll even use the love word all over the place, even though who are we fooling? I mean, is that really love? If someone, if someone will not bear your weight, because if you did let them bear your weight, they would be out of there, why would we pretend that it's love? But marriage, which is often a big surprise to newlyweds, 
Now that the woman has an insurance policy on her finger, she just like unloads her suitcase, her duffel bags, her container from the Aliyah office. And the man does too. The husband does too. Once he's safe, here comes what it takes to hold my heart. And the other spouse is just like, whoa. And you're like bearing all this weight. And there's like do's and don'ts you didn't even know about. This is why many people who live together, they even live together. They get married and get this like huge awakening. And they'll tell you how different marriages than living together. And the reason is, is because once you feel insured, once you feel safe to be supported in all you are and everything it takes that is you know all of a sudden there's detail now an infinite being relating to a finite world is not the most intimate relationship in the world it's a relationship you can like use the soul I mean our only fiber optic link is the soul so you can use your soul we did it earlier we connected we were doing it. I hope you're still connected. Raise your hand if you're still feeling the connection. Anyone still there? A <laughs> couple people. Okay, let's, let's just get it back for a second. Everyone close your eyes a moment. The reason we close our eyes, oh, you can open them for a second. The reason we close our eyes is because the optic nerve takes in tremendous data. So all of a sudden, like, your highway is covered in traffic. And so we close our eyes. Whenever you're doing spirituality, you almost always close your eyes. The reason is, is because that optic nerve that's dealing with things at the speed of light, it's like a massive amount of data. It shuts down. And then all of a sudden there's your, the, the lanes of the highway open up a bit for your consciousness, your presence. Your presence comes up. So let's all close our eyes, take a deep breath. Release. Slowly. Inhale. Release. Feel the presence of your consciousness. Inhale. And of God consciousness. Release. Open your eyes. And now think about it. You're re you're hooked in. You're hooked in. You're, what details? There's no details. There's no like extra details of laws you're doing right now. There's no there's nothing you have to fulfill for this. This is the way creation was. But what happened was that human beings fell into the plant and animal kingdom. Can you imagine humans falling into the plant and animal kingdom? But human beings actually fell from being human, and they fell down into the plant and animal kingdom. Because in the plant and animal kingdom, there's two major drives. They're called survival and reproduction. For human beings, that's called Money, power, having power, money to survive with, and sexuality. Those are, the, those are the voices in the mind, so to speak, of the plant kingdom, and that's the voice in the mind of the animal kingdom. Now, human beings share those voices, but that's not what we are. We are not animals and we are not plants. We share those voices because hey, God wants the world to perpetuate, so... So he wants us to go out and, like, you know, make sure there's food, and he wants us to, to 
to create a new generation, to pass on the traditions of old, to help heal the planet. But humans fell for 2,448 2, years. Do you know how many generations that was? It was two and a half millennia from Adam to Sinai of everyone falling into animal kingdom. Survival, reproduction, power, and sex. Till ultimately governments got a hold of this little formula. They didn't control the sex so much, but they certainly controlled the power. And they controlled the minds. And to this day, they're still in a mad race for the information age to get our information to somehow keep this like you know, high-tech incredible power of every individual with a smartphone to somehow keep it under control and of course the champions which are the last bastion of our privacy and I don't know who they are even anymore. I don't know if Apple's on our side or not anymore. I don't know if, uh, if uh, uh, what's the running operation system of the Samsung phone? Android. If Android's on our side or not. I don't know if Microsoft's on our side or not. I know Snowden was on our side. He took a great fall for a whole generation. I don't know who's on our side. But you want to hear something amazing? That that fight for the power of the individual to be great, which makes you completely ungovernable, you realize the greater you become, the less governable you are. You get that? The more powerful you are, the less it is possible to govern you. And by the way, if anyone watches my videos sometimes, anyone here watch my videos sometimes? Nobody? <laughs> So one must watch is uh, is Western civilization, uh, Judaism, the clash of Judaism with Western civilization. Google that. The clash of Western civilization with Judaism. It's an amazing class. It's all built off this that we're, that which we're discussing now. But but it's an entire like hour and a half uh, mini series of. Like, really, what, what we're up against. But Judaism says you're created in the image of God. That means you have this tremendous power. It's a tremendous power that only the likes of which we've only begun to understand with the power of a human being with a smartphone. It's really interesting that, uh, and I developed this in this class, is that the people who started Microsoft and Apple and all, all those original high-tech companies were hardcore counterculture hippies who, who were sensing their power. This was a time people were burning their draft cards. No, I'm not some number that's going to go to some foreign country and kill people in Vietnam in a rainforest, sticking our nose into other countries' businesses. It's not a numbers game. Every person is awesome. Every person is so powerful. Now, they weren't talking about the image of God, but, but 
something going on in their bloodstream was causing them to see how big they are. You know, they were getting the greatness of humanity. And you know what happened was when the government made all the things that were, had turned them on illegal. So they said, okay, we'll create a personal computer. And I actually owned one. I owned one of those. Anyone else there owned one of those first personal computers with the floppy disks? Yeah, you'd have to be pretty old to own that. Uh, it was a gigantic thing. I remember I had four megabytes on my whole computer. Can you imagine that? Four megabytes. And, and it started running really slow. And I got something called a RAM doubler. And it gave me eight. And I remember how excited I was to have eight megabytes. I mean, I'll never forget the day that I had eight megabytes of like running memory. But it didn't run quite like eight. It was a RAM doubler, so it was a little bit less than what it should have run with. But boy, was that a great day. And so the government's like, okay, so the hippies are like uh, making personal computers. That'll give them something to do. Let them do that. Look what happened. Look what happened. The computer got more powerful and smaller and more powerful and smaller and more powerful and smaller and more powerful. All the way until it hit laptops, until it just... Send out ideas. Egypt taken down via Facebook. Just messaging. Algeria. Syria. And the few governments that had not gotten taken down, like uh, the U.S., Europe, and uh, Russia, all of a sudden, uh, we got a problem on our hands, and we're going to have to get a hold of everyone's information. We're going to have to know and get in control of this thing. And they and they tried to do that, but the number one original source of the great prowess and power of humanity, the, of the individual. Human was Judaism. You're created in the image of the creator. You have great power. You're awesome. If I could put like a little electrodes up to your earlobes, we could power all of Jerusalem. You all realize that every single one of you could bring Mashiach. Every single one of you. If you stopped right now and you said, that's it, I'm not going to stop working towards Mashiach from this moment on, you know, you know you'd bring it. You'd bring it. You'd bring, you'd bring back, you'd bring the third temple. Every one of us would. If any of us decided that we're not going to sleep again until we bring it, the redemption, the final redemption. Now, of course, <laughs> you'd probably get all freaked out and paranoid and locked up by the authorities. You know, you probably walk around in white robes for a few days until they finally, you know, scooped you up. So I'm not saying to try it, but if you can do it smart at least, do it smart. I think that you would make a massive impact. But what's the number one attribute you'd need? The number one attribute you'd need is to believe how awesome you are. You'd have that'd be the first. If you until you believe how awesome you are, there's you can't do it. And I'll tell you, I'm really embarrassed because I spend all my time telling people how awesome they are. 
And I also, Baruch Hashem, I do a lot of awesome things. But, but I'm probably, I'm probably right now at like, what capacity of, am I at? I'm probably at 10%. Now, I don't mean to embarrass anyone for being at one, probably. If I'm at 10, you're probably at one. I don't know. You're, you're high up right now in your capacity. But you're always pretty high in your capacity. The, um, let's at least, let's at least get up to 10% of our capacity to make a difference. And I just got good news for all of you. Those of you who think that it would be irresponsible because you got to make a living, you know, you got to pay your bills. Well, if you actually could get yourself to 10% capacity in making this world a greater place just via how awesome you are and just all the ingenuity and ideas that would come to you, once you unleashed the incredible person inside of you, the world will pay for it. This happened to me years ago, years ago, decades ago. I realized, like, I got a sense of who I am inside. And I'm no different than, I'm no different than anyone here. The only difference probably between you and I, as far as realizing how awesome you are versus me, the only difference perhaps we have is that, is that, <laughs> she left the door. And the only difference between you and I is, is that I dropped out of school at 11 years old. And I also lucked out at being the third son. So my fathers, you know, fathers can't help but download the, to their first son, like everything, everything about the world. You know, their incredible grasp on things. So my father downloaded all of that to my oldest brother. And then, and then the second brother got whatever was left. And I got none of it. I got none of it. So I, got, I, got, I was out of the system at 11. And I did not have this like massive capitalist millionaire downloading into my brain all kinds of thoughts that would put me into another person locked in the machine. I, I, missed, I missed that day. I missed that day. My whole upbringing. Now, on the one hand, it was lonely growing up, you know, with a you know a big rich businessman traveling all over the world. I mean, I certainly could have used used uh, some more time with him. But uh, on the other hand, it was a... I, I just don't have to work through as much to realize how powerful we are. Again, I'm embarrassed to be at 10%. I think I'm probably at 10%. And I don't know what holds me back, but I feel like I'm on the verge of not letting it anymore. I don't know what that's going to mean exactly, but I'm, I'm just, uh, I don't even know what's holding me back exactly. I don't know if anything is, but I think, so, I think something must be. And so, uh, whatever. I'm willing, I'm willing to grow. Anyone else here willing to grow to find out how awesome you are and the difference you can make? Okay. Keep your hands up if that, even if that has consequences. Uh oh. <laughs> so everyone whose hands are still up, guess what? God will pay the bill. That's what I was going to say before. Is that when I realized this years ago, I said that I refuse. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to be one of those people who works for a living. Because the world's desperate for people like this, and so God will pay the bill. And I never worked a day. 
never, I've never worked a day in my life. I spend my entire life just doing, you know, the things I do, one of which is teaching here. And uh, I've never lacked, there's never been a Shabbos. You know, okay, maybe there's one or two Shabbos in 23 years that there was nothing to eat. You know, interesting, the one Shabbos where I really had nothing to eat, I went to a friend of mine's house for Shabbos with my whole family, a businessman. And, uh, and uh, we were all giggling throughout the meal because my wife and uh, eight kids and I were like, were like cracking up, you know, eating all this food and like going like, you don't have any money. You know, I'm like, thank God for this family. So just like that whole Shabbos, this guy, this guy hammered me. He hammered me for not having money. He's like, you're, you're like, you, you've got such a mission. Like, why aren't you monetized? This is like 15 years ago. Why aren't you monetized? And, and I was just about to fly off to the U.S. Uh, for another speaking tour. And I'm not going to tell you live how much money I came back with. But let's just say there's been food on my table ever since. And all I do is share this message of how awesome you are. How awesome you are. That's it. Anyone who's known me knows, I've been to a lot of my classes, it's all I do. I even devised an entire seminar built to rip you down and then have you, like, kind of let the egg of your life crack so that the chick can come out, spread her wings, and fly. Like, I actually developed a system how to do this because I'm so determined that every person realizes Speaking of which, uh, we do have one or two slots left for tonight. And I know a couple of these guys are already in the seminar, but if anyone's interested, um, there's one or two slots left, and we have a catch-up at 6 p.m. So if any of the men, it's a men's seminar, this particular one. So if any men are interested, let me train you on the deep, deep stuff. You know, let's, let's unravel what your story is. I was blessed I didn't have to have much of a story. I, as I said earlier, from my up, weird upbringing, I got to miss the story, m most of my story. Believe me, I have plenty of stories that I've cried through. I've cried buckets of tears through my stories. But yeah, let me let me train you. And this last one in Israel for four months. So tonight is the last chance to jump on. There's a catch-up at six, and there will not be another one in Israel for till November. Grab it. Next ones are New York, Montreal, and and then another New York, uh, New York, Montreal, Israel, November, and then New York in December. The amazing thing about this is that this guy came to me. The businessman came to me like two weeks ago, mm -hmm. and and here I am, like fifteen years not wanting for anything because I just do my thing and, and it flows. And it turns out that the businessman hit hard times and he came to me to tell me that he's lost everything and that he's nine months away from... Uh, I'm sorry, he's nine months not having paid his mortgage and, he, uh, and he's, being, he's being evicted him and his 10 kids, where I had Shabbos with my family. 
like they're losing the house. And I made a few phone calls and got the mortgage paid for. But he paid his own mortgage because he gave me the insight to realize my own ability to really reach out. That led me to a career that led me to the connections that led him to being able to not be evicted. It's just wild. Like he, he unevicted himself by having a family of 10 to his Shabbos table. You know what it's like inviting 10 people to your Shabbos as if they had 10 extra beds in their house. I mean, my kids were like sleeping all over the place over there. Do you get that? You see how they, everything's orchestrated? He got himself unevicted. And he, by the way, he wasn't even coming to ask me for money or anything. He was just like, he was just coming to cry on my shoulder. And uh, that was it. He said, I'm not here to ask you for something. I'm, you're not about to pay nine months mortgage. His hands. We're all in the Creator's hands. It's amazing. Amazing place to be. It's a very stable place to be. Now, by the way, I'm not saying anyone's going to get all rich. You know, just doesn't mean you're going to get rich. Some of you have a dream of being rich because you want to, like, save the world via your money. So you should probably work. <laughs> Working's a good thing. Uh, but if you yourself want to be the deliverer of the message, that will make a difference for so many others. You'll never lack. You'll always have. It will monetize itself. God's creation will, will lubricate your path. And uh, at what time has someone got a time check? Oh, exactly. Yeah, this is when I was told to go till. So I was told to go to 1.30, but let me just conclude. Lunch is at 1.30. Gentlemen. Lunch at 1.30. What? What'd you say? Oh, it's at 2? Lunch at 2? <laughs> okay, but we're still, we're, we're going we're gonna to conclude this little party here. Um, ladies, just give me one last moment. Um... Was I saying that God will pay the bills? There was one more thing I wanted to say. Is a stable place worthy? What? Is a stable place worthy? Only if uh, we want to lead the message to others. If you want us more on the back of work. Those parts I remember. <laughs> there was somewhere I was going with this message. Any questions? Yes? Um, too many pronouns in that question? Can you get rid of all the pronouns? That, Keep the subject in the sentence. That, <laughs> yeah. You said, like, there's so many, like, why are we so, in, why are we so involved in, in Why not just keep it simple? 
Oh my gosh, I'm in the middle of that analogy. <laughs> Guys, I'll finish the analogy as quickly as I can. There's, there's if you have to go, it's fine. The, when, when, basically it's like this, the nations who have to keep the seven are like God's girlfriend. And the Jewish people are like God's wife. The reason we're like God's wife is because we were shown everything. We were shown everything. At Mount Sinai, we were given everything. Now, I know today, like, women show everything, even without, you know, a, a wedding ring. But until late 60s, if you wanted everything, you had to, you, had to, you know, you had to pay with your with the ring finger, you know, and, and throughout in history, you know. If you want everything, that was that was the last card women had to even get married. Like you give up that card, like men will prefer to rent. Why buy when you can rent? But throughout history, uh, women used to hold that card very close because because that was their guarantee to be married and not be left single. When you married, you got everything. Humanity fell into the plant and animal kingdom in that they fell into survival and reproduction, which means that they lost the purpose of creation. It's like they got a mechitza over their head, cut off from God. And so God said, so then I guess having a relationship with the whole humanity, the whole planet is too much. People don't get it. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to take one nation. I'm going to build off of Abraham. First, I'll siphon off Yishmael to get a Yitzhak. I will siphon off Esau to get a Yaakov. We're not called B'nai Abraham or B'nai Yitzhak. We're called B'nai Yaakov, B'nai Yisrael. I'm going to siphon them off to create their own thing. One will be the, the semi-Semitic uh, you know, Muslim world in the end. The other one will become the Christian world, Western civilization. And all to create B'nai Yisrael, the, the children of Israel. And then I'm going to show them everything at Mount Sinai. God showed us everything. He gave us a full prophecy, the whole entire nation. Three million people seeing the nakedness of God. And again, I'm repeating that you never saw the nakedness until the marriage in his, throughout history. And we can think, uh, no offense to feminism, because I'm certainly you know, game for a lot of the things that feminism brought to the world. But this was not one of the good ones. This did not help matters much. This made things very, very rough on the woman. <laughs> it's funny if you think about it, like what women had to do in the end after the 60s to get the, their power, to get the power that, that they wanted in society was kind of, it almost got forced because of this. Because you understand, because they wound up single and unprotected. And so they had, they, it led to all the rest of modern feminism was all led to by the, the 19, late 60s of we're going to be just like those men, those slime balls, men fooling around all the time. We're going to be like them. And then they wound up in their 30s, totally unprotected, 40s, unprotected. Whereas marriage was the protection. Yeah. They're protected by the government. What's that? They're protected by the government. They became, because of the incredible, incredible power they achieved, they got protected. 
But they had to be only because of the because they were no longer protected by their husbands at age twenty. Now, this also explains anti-Semitism. Think about it. A guy comes home to his girlfriend. He was on a business trip in Las Vegas for a few days. He comes home to his girlfriend. They're living together. And, and he sees... He came home a day early just to surprise her. And I don't want to give you the graphic details, but let's just say, when he came in to surprise her in the bedroom, he had the surprise. Now, what does he do? He goes out, he buys a 12-pack of beer, and then he wraps his car around a tree or something. But when a man comes home to his home and his wife, and it's his family that he married her, and gets that kind of surprise when he gets to his bedroom. Out comes a shotgun. Everybody's gonna die. In other words, what we're doing here is explaining anti-Semitism. The reason why God just has like zero tolerance for the Jews, uh, you know, not keeping the covenant, is because we've seen it all. Like we got it all. We are the chosen people. What does it mean, chosen? We are the ones who saw the nakedness of God at Sinai. And we were given the Torah and all its details. Because with that kind of experience of intimacy comes responsibility. It's not like a girlfriend. It's a spouse. It's a full responsibility. And it comes with tremendous detail. And in keeping all that detail is the covenant. And in breaking all that detail, out comes the shotgun. How comes the hardcore anti-Semitism that we've suffered? Gentiles never have to go through what we go through. But that explains the intricacies of a Jewish life. Why we have thousands of laws is because we were given this vision of God, a prophetic vision, and, and it's taught by our Kabbalists that every single Jew was at Sinai. We all stood at Sinai. So even if you could say, like, well, I wouldn't stand at Sinai. I was born in year 2001 or 1994 or something. I wouldn't stand at Sinai. Your soul is not, this is not your soul's first time here. Your soul was there. And you stood, it says in the Torah. You all stood. Those who are here today, it says in the Torah. Those who are here today and those who are not here today. Very strange line of the Torah. You're all standing in front of Mount Sinai. Those who are here today, and those who are not here today. What's that supposed to mean? How can, if you just said we're standing at Mount Sinai, why are you mentioning people who aren't here? And so when you click on that, those words, it takes you to the commentators that say, it's talking about the reincarnated Jews from Sinai. We're all part of this amazing, but highly volatile covenant. And... And we all, we all have to, you know, we're all in this. As it says, if you didn't see the temple rebuilt in your days, it's because you destroyed it. It's, it's, our, it's still totally <laughs> upon us to rebuild this thing. It's on us. 
So these nine days, today's Rosh Chodesh, we're now going to count nine days. Today's day one. These nine days are like, go inside your heart so deep. Clean house, just clean house. What's in, what's going on inside there? What's holding you back? What kind of messages are in your head that are foreign thoughts to the incredibly pure mission of our nation? What's in the way? Rebuild it. You, I'm not saying you're necessarily going to be able to bring back the Beit HaMikdash in these nine days, but you can at least bring it back in you. <coughs> and I'm so excited because I started my seminar on the last night, which we begin the days with the nights. So we began it on Rosh Chodesh. We began it right as the nine days started. We have, you know, however many men in there, 20 something men just going in. We're going to clean the house. Whatever we got to cry out, we're going to cry out. Whatever we got to get through, and it's a lot to get through in this work. Whatever we got to get through, we're going to get through. And we're going to come out on the other side as one more light for our nation. One more beautiful, beautiful causer. Proactive causation. A causer of the beauty and greatness every human being and their ability to connect to God and the Jewish nation's job on earth which is to be this conduit this, this, these people who get aligned with the 613 types the negative ones we have to get out of the way for some kind of flow we don't understand I'm sure there's some Kabbalist understands what the flow is for pig but our job is to back out of that spot so it flows and then all the positive commandments are ones we need to align with and draw flow. When the positive commandments, we draw the flow into the creation to bring about the redemption of our planet. May it come soon in our days. Amen. Amen. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.